And one of the things we talk about is if we don't give effort, if we're not recognized for effort at the University of Oklahoma, then I'm a con man and they're a fraud. guys welcome to the oklahoma breakdown podcast brought to you guys by sb nation's crimson and cream machine i'm your host kami i'm robbie and joined today by my wonderful guest spencer davis from the dallas morning news for the time being spencer how's life man man it's good just uh just enjoying quarantine you know as, as much as we can uh, i'm enjoying seeing this uh a lot of positive news about the NBA possibly coming back in a couple of months coming out. So yeah, have you seen like it. the new extended timeline about all that stuff? Um, I, I, I think so. Maybe not. I'm not sure that if anything came out this morning, I may have missed that, but in terms of like them starting in like July, right? Yeah. It's like July and then like all the free agency stuff and yeah. uh, draft is in the fall and then yeah. restarting the new season, I guess, in December. Christmas. Yeah, which, I mean, I think a lot of people have been asking for that for a while. Um, yeah. It would make it more interesting, I think, to, you know, kind of avoid football season. But Yeah, it's like really the, the NBA, unless you're a fan of NASCAR or soccer, is giving people life to sports as far as yeah. like team competitive <laughs> sports. Yeah. And it's, it's nice to see. Have you, have you like found anything out about yourself during quarantine or found any new hobbies or rekindled old hobbies, I guess? I've, I realized that I am willing, you know, I think everybody has a line of what they're willing to do in terms of like what sport I will watch and what I won't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I watched German soccer last Saturday. Oh, I did not end up this morning. I did. I watched, uh, I watched most of uh, Dortmund's game versus Schalke. Um, big, big Dortmund fan, lifelong Dortmund fan with uh, Gio Reyna. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I, I, I guess the other, the thing that I won't watch that I realize is NASCAR. Same. Like I, I I can't I can't cross that line. You know, it's an American sport and all that, but uh, couldn't couldn't get into NASCAR. I even I did watch some Korean baseball to kind of See, go to sleep. Yeah, at like one a.m. But just yeah, I, noise, I feel you. <laughs> Definitely, and like I watched I watched like I guess something somebody wrecked somebody in NASCAR as per usual, yeah, and yeah. like the most entertaining thing I saw out of that entire like highlight was the guy getting out of his car and flipping him off as the next time yeah, he made I, a round. I think Denny Hamlin, right? Denny Hamlin, yeah. I, and I then did, I did see that clip, yeah. Got out of his car with his M&M's uh, face mask on. So that's a, that was intriguing. But, yeah, I'm not a NASCAR dude. Those, that thing <laughs> sort of puts me to sleep. But we have a lot to talk about regarding football. Yeah. Maybe coming back to football, what that looks like. Tom Herman and a couple other things. It's a, it's a never-ending process with that guy down in Austin. And, uh yeah, he's he's a he's an interesting interesting guy. But talking about the OSSAA uh, for, of course, high school athletics and high school activities in Oklahoma, really, they laid out specific clear plans for everything to return, and they did it, like doing it in a safe manner, I guess specifically in like you know phases by day one or week whatever to three weeks to whatever, and they they went to a vote yesterday and. Um, the safeness or the whatever the policies they w- wanted to sign um, actually failed, and now all these teams and groups, like even like marching band that people don't really think about, and like other other uh, extracurricular activities, are allowed just to practice uh, whenever. And 
I know I, I've been talking, I, I talked to a couple area coaches uh, from the Metro and they said, you know, some coaches are super likely just to dive right into things and um, others are, are going to use that book as their, or the, those guidelines anyways to be safe. And yeah. I know I can't, I can't remember who on Twitter uh, might've been uh, Eric but said that a lot of Tulsa area head coaches would use those guidelines as well. But man, what uh, is Caden McFarland? Caden McFarland. Okay. Okay. So what, what does all that mean? Do you think for high school athletics and extracurriculars, as far as like them saying, you know what, you know, it's all, it's all yours. Have at it. Go lift weights and stuff. Look, I mean, the OSSA, whatever the acronym is, OSSAA has been, you know, they're not exactly known for great decision-making. I mean, they, you know, they're, they're able to crown a champion every year and it, it works out. Um, but, you know, I, I played baseball in high school in Tulsa and, you know, we had issues with them multiple times and, you know, I, I'm sure other sports had, had similar uh, experiences and I don't know, sometimes they're great. Sometimes they're not. In this case, it seemed like, you know, I guess the board of directors are the ones that, uh, that kind of turned, you know, said, no, we're actually not going to take any of these or not going to mandate any of these precautions. Young uh, people don't is, get sick, <laughs> man. Yeah. I, I, I want to throw this out, not necessarily as a hot take, but just as a, uh, like a devil's advocate. Um, but if this thing doesn't spike up again and high school kids are going to class five days a week, whatever in the fall, I guess it's good that they're able to practice through the yeah. summer, right? I mean, it's not the it's not the most risk averse decision that they could have made, but like I've got a cousin that uh, that is about to start his junior year and is super excited, I guess, about you know obviously about being able to play football this summer and being able to practice this summer. So as long as this thing doesn't get any worse, then it's good that they're going to be able to practice this summer because you know everyone's going to develop and you know quality of play and everything will be better in the fall, but. Man, if I was a decision maker, uh, you know, with in, in one of these schools or, is, you know, district wide, whatever, um, you know, I, I think I'd be more risk averse. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And it's just, I mean, you've got dudes like in dudes that I don't re regularly agree with, uh, like David Port Portnoy from uh, Barstool. Yeah. Um, he like r has railed, you know, Fauci for the last, you know, month or whatever. But he went on another rant just the other day um, of some stuff that I mildly agreed with as far as, like, what what does this all look like as far as, like, why are we flip-flopping and all these other things as far as, you know, going to school, going, not going to school, returning, not returning. It's really interesting and intriguing, you know, like, all of these schools in the Metro specifically have about 15 different contingency plans on what school might look like in the fall yeah. and they're all just like throwing things out there seeing what they look like you know it could be and of course all of them say the most optimistic views that everybody's back in school like normal in the fall and then uh some of it looks like you know some kids letters a through m show up for monday wednesday friday or monday and wednesday and yeah. n through z tuesday thursday and friday's like a teacher work day at the uh at you know, institutions like at high schools or universities. And so it's pretty, pretty wild to think that all these things were like maybe blended yeah. classrooms and it's pretty wild to think about, you know, people are making these decisions in, uh, in May when most people shouldn't even be out of school right now. 
Yeah. Um, but I get the whole idea as far as planning. And I, I, I like what you brought up the whole second wave thing. Cause a lot of scientists are going to say, you know, there's going to be a second wave. And a lot of people I've talked to they say, yeah, it's, there's going to be a second wave, but people don't know how bad it's going to be. Uh, according right. to most recent scientific stuff that they, they came out with a study, it said, yeah, you can get reinfected, but once you get infected, I guess you can't transmit it for some reason, which is, I don't know. I don't, I'm not a science major. I don't know how it works. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, pretty incredible. And so the thing I asked the coaches secondly, off the top of my head, as far as like what OSSAA means and you know, like what that means for the students and what that means for the coaches. I said, so what do you think that means for games? Because when I was thinking all this COVID stuff was going down, I thought, man, you know, first in the first stages, it was bleak and still is bleak today. But what is it like? What would it look like if there's no high school football? Like evaluation would have to be for the senior class would have to be from their junior tape. And yeah. suddenly there's no guys like uh, Josh, Josh Jacobs or whatever from Tulsa. He'd be going to Wyoming instead of Alabama. Yeah. And I said, what is, so I said, next step, what do you think games are like? Do you guys host games with fans or are fans going to be in there? Or are they going to have face masks? And what do you think they're high school games? So what do you yeah. think it looks like? I mean, that's the thing is like, if it, so the, I guess the structure that you brought up where like A through M is on Monday, Wednesday, and the rest of them are Tuesday, Thursday. If that's the case, I don't think you can play high school football. Like yeah. if you're saying you can't even bring the general population all together, how are you going to bring 80, 17 year olds together to play, you know, or double that to, to play a high school football game? I don't think you can. Um, in terms of whether or not they have fans, I would guess not. Other th although, like, most high school football fans are parents anyways, mm -hmm. so maybe they get to come in. Um, what I don't know is, and this would be school by school, but how much of a budgetary, you know, problem that's going to be for, you know, ticket sales aren't a huge boon, I wouldn't think, for, for athletic departments in high school, but it probably helps cover some holes that they will now need to be covered by booster clubs. Um, I mean – there's a lot of different repercussions that could happen if, you know, if they try to play. And the other thing is if, is if there's that second wave sometime around, you know, after the weather starts getting colder in like October, you're mid football season at that point. Mm -hmm. So that's going to be super hard to shut it down, which I think is why a lot of people early on were saying, well, let's just cancel everything. And, you know, which isn't necessarily the right thing to do either. We need to see if, if the second wave is coming, but that's, uh, you know, probably the most risk averse thing you could do, whether or not it's right. Um, you know, We'll find out in a couple of months, I guess. Yeah, and, and the interesting thing that a couple of these coaches said, one said to me that they expected just to be football as normal, fans in the stadium. And then the, another coach said to me uh, that they wouldn't be surprised if fans were allowed, were allowed in, but they had to wear masks. So both were expecting fans to be allowed into these stadiums, uh, but, you know, of course, under different measures. And then – most recently, the NCAA and the Big 12 and the SEC, they started ha uh, coming out with these dates as far as these phases and which athletes are allowed to come back to campus. I believe the SEC said June 8th football players can come to campus and start working out and doing a lot of other things, among other athletics. And then the Big 12 most recently said, all right, well, June 15th, you know, everybody's allowed to come to campus work out for voluntary conditioning and you know you put the word voluntary in air quotes for many of these institutions and 
you'd look at Mike Gundy getting all the blowback for saying <laughs> May 1st. And then he basically came out and said, you know, he apologized, but in a way that said, I'm sorry, you're offended. And then yeah. <laughs> Lincoln Riley came out and said, well, June 1st might be too early. And then now people asked Joe C and they said, basically like, Hey, the SEC, they're coming back June 8th. And yeah. does that put any pressure on Oklahoma? Does that put any pressure on anything else knowing about it? And he basically said, they don't care. They're being cautious. They feel no, exactly no pressure in dealing with all of this. So with all that said, do you really believe Joe C and Lincoln Riley as far as like, oh yeah, you know, we need to return later in June while you see other counterparts maybe in the SEC returning possibly two to three weeks earlier, depending upon when they feel comfortable enough about hosting athletes on campus. Yeah, I, I saw, you know, I liked what Lincoln said when he basically, he said, you know, we got one shot at this was mm-hmm. the gist of what he was saying. And we need to be patient. I believe he said it's one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard when asked about athletes coming back on June 1st, which is a little bit over the top. I couldn't tell if that was a shot at the SEC or a shot at Mike Gundy or both. Mm. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's what he said. Um, I don't know. I, I just – I don't – you may feel differently on this. I feel like this is just off-season forum fodder for, like, you know, oh, you has to play Tennessee and Tennessee gets an extra four practices. Like, how ridiculous – you know, it's unfair. You gotta, and, it's just something that we're going to yell about in June and July, but something that probably won't actually matter if, you know, that game is played in September, but you know, it's where we're at. And um, you know, that's all these administrators have to fight about right now. So that's kind of, you know, what we're left with, I guess. Part yeah. Part of me thought about this in the mean of like, you know, there's not much sports information going on and anything that comes out is going to be sensationalized because people need sports and people want to argue about sports and any small thing will set people off specifically about return dates. And from what I understand, a lot of this is even about getting student athletes to come practice because a lot of these guys are trying to condition on their own. Um, A lot of it is getting recruits on campus, which is seemingly more important than actually coming and practicing, uh, especially when you have, you know, for the Sooners, they're returning a defense that's mostly pretty experienced. Nine guys coming back, starting experience, and then on the offense, you're replacing some really important receivers and a quarterback, but everybody else is pretty consistent, pretty still. So really, you're not too worried about the athletes themselves as much as you are getting recruits and then also conditioning is, of course, another big thing. But it's just intriguing to me about how, you know, they're saying, oh, yeah, like, you know, June 8th, June 15th, you know, we getting just getting players back on campus is first and foremost or whatever. It's just incredible to me that Lincoln Riley's, you know, going about, you know, how say, because he's like taking the anti-Gundy approach. Gundy, yeah. would, oh, get them on campus. They're the least likely to die. Run money through the state of Oklahoma. <laughs> it's just like, oh, okay, dude. And, and then, he, you know, Paul, he, he somewhat apologizes or what you call an apology. And then Lincoln Riley's like, you know, we need to go as late as possible. And yeah. so my, my curiosity got struck with that because talking about, you know, players being back on campus. And you mentioned, you know, a second wave if it does happen or what the severity of it if when it does depending upon what that looks like in October or November let's say a player because we, we've said this several times you know when we've talked about it in the NBA we're talking about it with football 
But you, let's say a player or a coach uh, gets hospitalized because of the virus. Yeah. What is it? Patrick what does that look like? Yeah. Are they are they shutting it down, or, or do they shut the entire thing down? Do they keep going? What do they do? I think the answer is different in the pros versus college. Like we were talking about the Bundesliga earlier. They right before they started, they had two other players test positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in the pros, especially you know the NBA, they're going to be able to say, "Look, we're paying you guys millions of dollars." If you test positive, you know, we're going to quarantine you. We might quarantine some of your teammates for X number of days, but the show goes on. Mm-hmm. The liability situation in college is so much different. I mean, not only do you have, you know, essentially, I don't, you know, I don't want to dramatize it by calling them unpaid labor, but that's essentially what, you know, they're, they're paid via scholarship. They don't have a union, you know, all that, all, all everything that goes into that. And so, you know, you just have so much less leeway, I think, with what you can ask of them in a situation like this. And you also have the liability of these programs are built on top of these actual universities that, you know, are there for academics and, you know, for for other purposes. And they have to be able to survive this whether or not football is there. And so I I think that, you know, university presidents are going to have a different set of questions to ask in terms of what they're willing to, you know, what sort of risk they're willing to take on. Do you think that they would send waivers to players to sign because of that? I could, yeah. I mean, I, I would think that there would have to be some kind of a waiver, but hopefully, you know, the players have somebody looking out for them saying, hang on, don't necessarily, you can't necessarily sign this. Right. I mean, right. who's looking out for the player in this situation? Exactly. It's apparently it's, it's not Mike Gundy. I mean, it's yeah. not, it's, it's not, it's probably not going to be Nick Saban, although he's been, you know, he, I guess he had the mask PSA and, and stuff like that. And he, he's been helpful. So it shouldn't throw him under the bus, but you know, these older football coaches in the South want to get football going. Um, and, you know, they, they would like to think that whatever they tell the players to do is what's best for the players. That's not always the case. And let's, let's say somebody like a Gus Malzahn or somebody like a Nick Saban or Lincoln Riley, Tom Herman, et cetera. Let's say one of these dudes end up hospitalized. Does, yep. that, shut the, does that shut the entire season down similar to what happened for the NBA and the rest of sports in Oklahoma City with Rudy Gobert? Like once that happens, does that shut if everything a, down? If it's a coach – you know, I don't think so. I think it would maybe take, I, you know, who knows? I mean, I, I don't think a, one coach would. I think, you know, the coach would just quarantine himself and they obviously they would test the hell out of everybody else on the team and all the other coaches and mm-hmm. support staff and everything. But and that's the other thing. These, you know, the NBA, you can get 10,000 tests and test the whole league, whatever, for X number of days. You've got what? I mean, how many people are in the traveling party at OU? 150? God, so many. I mean, you could cut it down, but – you know, not just the traveling party, but how about, you know, you got 105 players at least. You got at least 10 coaches, X number of grad assistants, you know, quality control, uh, PR, you know, other executives like Josie. Like, there's so many people that you would have to test on a daily basis. I guess it's each individual college purchasing these tests. Yeah, I have, knows? I have no idea. And you got to imagine, like, all these universities and coaches are trying to invest in – different forms of protection against this virus while they're trying to get guys on campus. It's just, it's incredible what it means from maybe when an assistant coach gets a virus and is in the ICU or like a player catches it. And let's say, you know, that's not out of the realm of possibility, but a player catches it and dies. That will just, that, that will put the league, that will put the entire sport at a standstill 
until there's a vaccine available. And I could see just a player going into the ICU in like medically induced coma and they say, you know what, let's scrap it. Not worth it. Not worth the life. So when Lincoln Riley says they've got one shot, I think that's very serious and very real. Yeah. I mean, I look, I mean, if they, if they mess this up this first time, I mean, they're probably not going to get a second chance. I mean, and I don't know that it's just, obviously if somebody dies, I think I agree. They would shut it all down. But if, you know, if just one person gets it, if I'm trying to think of, you know, a mid-level, like if let's, let's say if Mac Brown gets coronavirus, Mm -hmm. like I don't know that all of college football shuts down. Right. uh, Assuming that, you know, he makes a full recovery and all that, but you know, North Carolina might take a couple weeks off, Mm -hmm. you know, and they may just have to rework the schedule on the fly. have contingency plans for that move some bye weeks around. Um, who knows? I, what I don't think is going to happen is all a hundred, you know, how many, however many, were there 128 FBS teams? Yeah. It's somewhere around I there. Think, I don't think all of them are going to play a 12 game schedule. I don't that's think what so I'm either. Pretty, that's what I'm pretty sure about. Um, now all the power five teams, maybe, but, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be need to be, especially if fans aren't in the stands, there's going to be some, some budgetary needs for, you know, Basically, any program below like a Kansas State is probably going to have some shortfalls that they're going to have to figure out. But so yeah, uh, let's talk about fans in the stands because I mean there are so many different scenarios in which you could bring up what the number of like fans if it's zero if it's you know a certain percentage of the total you know capacity of stadium seating if it's each player like what they were planning to do with March Madness which was you know each player gets. 10, 15 tickets or something like that for family, you know, what is, what does that possibly look like? Do you think, do you think Oklahoma could bring back 30% of the stadium and put, you know, 15 and split the stadium, 20% lower bowl and 10% upper bowl with like having student, those student workers make sure everybody's social distancing. Like how, what does that even look like? And would it be worth it financially? And because football is big for Oklahoma, especially, uh, for Campus Corner, all those businesses, I think about oh, yeah. going out of business, you know. So it's really financial rut. It turns out these amateur players are not as amateur as we want them to be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'll start with the Campus Corner thing. I mean, I, I, the rent at Campus Corner, any Campus Corner restaurant is extraordinarily high. I can't give like a specific number, but it's higher than just like like O'Connell's rent is way more than like the Monts or, mm-hmm. you know, or even, you know, like Diamond Dogs rent might be more than the Mons. I don't know, even though it's a much slower, much um, smaller establishment. But um, the other thing you said was, you know, can you get 30% or 40, whatever the number is, of fans in the stands? I mean, yeah, it, sound, it seems like that's what a lot of schools are going to do, basically friends, family, and big donors, <laughs> whatever number, you know, whatever percentage that ends up being. Um, I wonder if, you know, you risk – alienating a portion of the fan base mm-hmm. that and especially a portion of the fan base that is you know already saying you know what my couch is more comfortable than row 39 mm-hmm. uh, you know you know I don't I don't need to donate a ton of money to the university this year you know I I've got a 60 inch screen tv in my living room and I'm fine you know I don't, I don't if I'm from Tulsa or or from you know Wichita whatever I don't need to drive multiple hours to, to go to a game you know this year and and so I, I think a lot of fans would come back, but I think some, you know, you'd, you'd probably lose and maybe the straw that breaks the camel's back. But um, it, I guess it would just come down to 
the risk reward of alienating part of the fan base versus like how much of gate revenue can you recuperate by putting X percentage of fans in there? And then you add on to this idea that all like all tickets are now electronic and you just, yeah, people I, are pissed I, about that. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I mean like younger people, they, that's what they've been doing for however many, like, like you, you, yeah. you can just see going to the airport. Not a lot of people are going to the airport these days, but you see people that are roughly 30 years, 35 and under having their airplane tickets on their phone and their thunder tickets and everything else on their phone, you know, going and scanning with the TSA agents and whatever, it's fine. But then you typically see the older folks and the older generations actually have their physical boarding pass and other physical passes. And so for some, it's not, it's some, it's just like, okay, this is business as usual. And for some, it's really going to upset people like, you know, people that hate direct deposit probably hate this idea. And I was just thinking about like, oh yeah, they, it's trying to keep scalpers away, but you can Apple wallet several things and send several things. And it just makes the process a little more difficult. But I was thinking about the money and the high priority ticket pricing that would come along with this because people are going to still figure out how to scalp their tickets. People are going to still figure yeah. out how to sell their tickets. And those prices for like maybe seats that cost 75 bucks per seat are going to be at least double that if in fact certain like 30% of 80,000 or 82,000 is allowed in the stadium. Yeah. So it's just incredible to me. And I think because you know Oklahoma relies so much on football for like a lot of their sports like basketball breaks almost even and a lot of and softball like they're their own thing and they they do really well and they fill those stands because they're a national competitor every year but everybody else you know football fills in a lot of stop gaps and you know it's just I think they need that money and I I don't I don't know so I think any money they can recruit recoup will uh be gladly taken by the university and so i think about like other smaller schools that just scrap their entire programs right now because they yeah. know they won't have the money and they have to have to make it up yeah. in different ways it's a bunch of a bunch of unknowns in may that we don't even know what things will look like in the middle of june right now it's just if yeah. these things change every other day is about how we're supposed to live life and I mean, something that doesn't change is Tom Herman and his, his <laughs> stupidity, really. Like, I mean, this man is really – when the first time I ever went to Big 12 Media Days, um, you know, Keegan, and um, he mentioned to me, you know, Tom Herman is always going to he's, – he's an interesting guy. He's the, he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, and he's always incredibly smug. I was like, okay, whatever. We'll see. We'll see yeah. what happens. And then – he was right. Yeah, we went, to, we went to Big 12 Media Days, and I was like, I know you're right. He, he's a Mensa member, and he thinks he's the smartest man in the room. And uh, he was asked, how can Texas end OU's Big 12 reign of winning, like, what, five in a row? And he quoted saying, it's going to take continued effort to recruit elite talent as if they already don't do better than OU every year and to develop that talent. And then hopefully, hopefully that's the key word, hopefully one of these days, they'll stop having first and second round draft picks at quarterback. That's incredible. I mean, next year they're not going to have one, you know? Yeah. It is. <laughs> but then after that, you know, who knows? It's just like, as a Texas fan, when you see that quote, what, what would, what would you be yeah. thinking? And then I was thinking about this, like last night I was, I was watching the OU uh, Red River shootout 
you know, from this last year, Jalen Hurts, after he said, oh, yeah, every, every game's a rivalry game, which is annoying. But um, watching, watching that, and I thought, man, what's going to happen if Sam Ellinger is a, is a senior and Oklahoma trots out a redshirt freshman in Spencer Rattler, and what if Oklahoma wins by three touchdowns and just boat races them? What, that do, what this does, what Tom and Herman's saying does for the Texas fan psyche, and then what that does in Dallas for the Texas fan psyche, that, that program has to implode at some point again with Tom Herman's head being at the helm. Yeah, I, I think Tom Herman is more on the hot seat than than most fans, most Texas fans would want to admit right now. And the reason why I say that is that the uh, Chris Del Conte, who is Texas's athletic director, did not hire Tom Herman. Tom Herman was a holdover from the previous era. Was it Steve Patterson? Was that his name? Yeah, I think the previous AD who had hired, who was kind of an interim the whole time, even though he was there forever. Um, so I think eventually Chris Del Conte is just going to want to make a hire you know, make his own hire, bring in his own guy. And I think it's going to be a good hire because he's an awesome athletic director. He's at TCU forever. He got TCU in the big 12, but you know, what's Texas going to do in the meantime, especially with, you know, I hate to bring it back to the coronavirus, but Texas is not necessarily going to have a ton of money to pay off Tom Hearn's buyout, which I'm sure is ginormous because every college coach's buyout is ginormous. I mean, it's not necessarily, you know, Jimbo Fisher's owed like $60 million. Aggies are not that, it's not that bad, but you know, whatever Herman's buyout is, it's probably too rich right now for, you know, the oil market in Texas. Um, You know, especially, you know, I've I've got some numbers from OU here that um, I was going to bring up a second ago, but you know, OU's athletic department made about 55 million or sorry, OU's football program made about, made over $50 million last year in profit, <laughs> according to the, uh, you know, what they sent to me. But the, you know, when you loop in all the other sports, it drops down to 5 million. Jeez. You know, they only cleared 5 million. Now, some of that is some, some creative accounting math that college programs do. Mm-hmm. But it's, you know, they're not exactly, you know, putting a ton of money in the bank. I'm sure Texas is in a similar spot uh, in terms of, you know, having booster money and, and all that sort of stuff to be able to uh, – to fire Tom Herman if, if they need to at the end of the year. And all this combined with Tom Herman canned almost his entire staff this last year. Yeah. And they're a lame duck coach move. <laughs> it's just like, it's incredible. <laughs> kind of like Custer's last stand as far as like, this man has fired everybody <laughs> almost once again and brought in new guys with a senior quarterback and they are getting to practice late and i imagine he wants to get on campus asap to get these to run another one of his death camps. and all of a sudden it's coming back around to where you want players on campus and he's not getting that right now and you know they're looking at and possibly another disappointing seven eight win season if they can't get things rolling and he runs those death camp practices that Half his players are hurt by midseason, which doesn't bode well for the Red River shootout, Red River rivalry, whatever you win to call it. It's just incredible that Texas is in the shape that they're in. And Tom Herman was such a hot commodity at Houston. And he was, yeah. Including, you know, including <laughs> others at Oklahoma wanted Tom Herman to be the next head coach at OU. And, I mean, I think people are very thankful now that it didn't work out like yeah. that. 
I, I will say, I, and OU fans are probably going to roll their eyes when I say this because Texas has been Texas, whatever they are right now for the last 10 years. But I do think the next coach will be a good hire. I mean, Chris Del Conte is one of the best athletic directors in the country. You know, I'm not going to say he's as good as Joe C or will be as good as Joe C, but he's, I, I'm very confident he'll make a good hire um, if and when they replace Herman. In, in Texas, they, they're just historically above average. They have really yeah. good seasons here and there. And then they, they recruit have, like hell, yeah. yeah I, I just don't that, – that's the thing is I don't get how you're in Austin. You have so many donors. You have all the talent around you. You're on the east side of Texas. There's just – there's so much available to you to go out and be dominant every year, but they just can't seem to do it. In Oklahoma, they, they pull guys, and they don't even pull the best guys from Texas all the time and yeah. consistently have – whipped their ass in the modern age of college football is just incredible to me it's, it's a culture thing and, and mac brown had an awesome culture for a long time uh, peaked with colt mccoy obviously vince young and then colt mccoy later and ever since colt mccoy left it just hasn't been the same they just yeah. never mac brown never got it rolling with a leader to replace colt mccoy i think they you know everybody got a little bit too cocky over there and you know then they've made they made a bad hire with charlie strong which I mean, heck, everybody, OU, OU in the 90s had all sorts of bad hires. Alabama in the early 2000s, you know, big-time programs can falter Tennessee for the last 20 years if they have, you know, bad hires. Yeah. And, but I do think eventually, you know, they'll, they'll break out of it. But um, for right now, it's, you know, they're just kind of stuck with a bad hire at head coach, I think, culture-wise at least. Yeah, and I was doing research over this once, and – Mac Brown has the highest win percentage and the most amount of wins at the University of Texas in their history. I did not know that Mac was probably the golden age of Texas football until most recently. And you have like legendary coaches like Darrell Royal and stuff like that. But Mac Brown, you know, he consistently was in the national picture and made it to two national titles and probably should have won the other one if Colt McCoy didn't get hurt. It's pretty incredible, but I guess we could stop talking about Texas football and talk about <laughs> Starlin Baldwin being mad online and then oh, no. his, his being mad online. I, I, mean, I, I saw this briefly and I, I was like, I just, I, I don't believe you. This is kind of the only thing that I said and, and didn't give it much thought after that. And then of course, you know, he deletes the tweet. Um, I remember you'd put out a couple of tweets of like, or, you know, quote tweeted some of his old stuff, like it's just like having or whatever. It's incredible because he says, you know, man, this quarantine has got my stuff right. I was forced to practice at OU on a, on a bad leg. And like, we were ignoring the context here of him coming to OU already hurt him tearing his ACL once again at OU yeah, and actually rehabbing at OU and like that tweet right before that one he sent out. Cause apparently Starlin doesn't tweet that much, but the tweeter before that one was from preseason of 2019. And he was like, Oh man, fully rehab that I'm ready to go for another season. And then the next yeah. tweet is quarantine's got my body right because I was forced to practice on half a leg. And I'm like, I don't, <laughs> I don't believe this. And then of course, the next thing you know, I was thinking, you know, over over under 30 minutes, how long before this tweet is taken down? And of course, that no, thing disappeared. Disappeared. Which he's not, I mean, he's he's in the portal, right? Has he landed anywhere? I don't think so. That's my thing. I'm like, so I, like <laughs> I don't know. It's weird that OU would still have the leverage. Like, I wonder who, 
like I'm sure Lincoln asked him to take it down or although he claimed that he didn't know anything about it when he talked to the media like an hour later which is yeah Lincoln also calls ACL injuries lower leg injuries (laughs) and that they may be out for a little bit of a time it's a topic for another day but I do wonder who had the juice with him to be able to get him to, to delete it. Maybe he just Chip. thought better. Of it. I don't know. <laughs> but who knows? But no, that was, gosh, I mean. <laughs> imagine imagine that. Like, and everybody said, oh, wow. There's like, and, and this is in the middle of OU getting two high quality like, recruits. And then, yep. yeah, Starland over there saying, like, hey, by the way, I was broken and they made me practice. And then everybody else is like, well, I didn't know rehab was forcing you to practice. Yeah. It's just a mess within 30 minutes of each other. And then another player came out and this is kind of in reference to earlier, Theo Howard, who's also rehabbing an injury. That's pretty interesting. I saw this. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was really intriguing because, you know, we mentioned about players and their amateurs or at least we want to treat them like they're amateurs and not, yeah you know, professionals and stuff like that. And Theo Howard tweeted out in the, you know, May 13th, he said, I'm going to be real. If we're out there playing in the fall with no fans, when it supposedly isn't safe, the NCAA better be playing, be better be paying players like professionals. And I can't say that I disagree because you look at yeah. all these cities and you look at like places like campus corner and you look at these institutions and you find out, wow, we really need these people to play because we need money. So then, like, you yeah. find out, okay, like I said earlier, these guys are far less amateur than we thought they were, and they are actually more essential than several other institutions. And what that means for the NCAA and universities and their players going forward after all this stuff and after a vaccine gets in place and what the ramifications and repercussions are regarding paying players and yeah. becoming less amateur. Like, I don't know what that looks like, but it's – like, it's a very real conversation to be had. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if, if at the end of this, and this is looking way down the line, but I, I wonder if they'll get some kind of a union to, you know, be able to negotiate. And I know, I know Northwestern tried to make that happen a couple of years ago. I don't remember mm-hmm. exactly how it all turned out. But, you know, it's, it certainly seems, you know, something that make, would make sense for them to have a union, if nothing else, to negotiate you know, this uh, name image likeness policy that's about to go into effect. And so the, the players can have a seat at the table and a voice for how certain things are going to be regulated. Um, now you throw in hazard pay essentially for paying yeah. a hand for, you know, propping up these cities, small towns, essentially in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, yeah, they, they definitely need some sort of uh, representation. So, um, you know, I don't think there's any talk of that right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if that happens down the line. Yeah, because, I mean, and if you don't have these guys having waivers or to sign things, like you're asking for so many legal issues to come down the line. And it's just, it's unreal to me that we're we're seeing this play out live. And it's just something that, you know, we did not see coming 20 years ago, right? In 2000, this yeah. was not ever going to be on the dock. You, we, we were happy playing our NCAA. How about one year ago? <laughs> yeah, really. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like we were just happy yeah. playing NCAA football games and whatever. And now it's like, hey, we should maybe start paying players. And now it's like, hey, these guys actually mean a lot to the economy. And we need to get athletes in every facet going because they generate so much revenue. Yeah. It, un- unbelievable. Uh, but you, yeah. yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, you just, you look, it's such a stark contrast between, you know, the NBA or even especially MLB right now trying to get their sport backed up. And it's this huge fight between the players and the owners. But you look at colleges and 
there's, it's really not a fight. It's just yeah. these executives or athletic directors deciding like, you know, are we going to come back on June 8th or June 15th? And the players don't have a voice at all. Right. So that's like just as, my Gundy yeah. thing. Like, what is that? What does he risk alienating, alienating his players saying we should be back May 1st? Man, he should. I mean, honestly, like it's not the first time that he's, you know, stepped in it with that. So the, yeah, I think his right. players probably know what they're getting into there. Um, but it is interesting that like, like we said earlier, that Lincoln took, he's taking the exact opposite approach. Uh, I'd be curious to know what how Bob Stoops would respond. I don't think it would have been like what Lincoln said. Man, I, I don't, probably would have been I don't closer know. To Gundy. That's intriguing to think about what Bob's what Bob's take on it would be. I think Bob would have just followed what Joe C told him what to do. Probably, in all honesty, yeah. which is like uh, take the respectful route. Let's do the opposite of what Gundy is, and I bet Herman yeah. is of the same vein of Gundy because he just needs to get on campus anyways because they have so many new moving parts, but. Let's transition to things that we know we have to do before the podcast is over. We're going to yell now. Are we going to yell? You can yell. (laughs) I mean, I've got, I've got notes just like you've got notes. I, I I talked to a couple of guys that are on the team as, as the same time as these few guys. And I asked their opinion on it too. Oh no. (laughs) And so I was just like, Hey, uh, I was just I was like, Hey, what years? Like you played these specific years. Right. And they're like, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm just making sure. Uh, so you know, I asked them their opinions and, you know, try to see if it was, was consistent with mine, but uh, some were, some weren't actually. So it's just intriguing. So your take, your original take wasn't Brendan Clay is better than Kennedy Brooks. It was about Kennedy Brooks not being elite. If, am I right on that? But right. his numbers Yeah. Were? So yeah, I mean, we've had this conversation on Twitter. I mean, it's, it's, it's about Kennedy Brooks and just, I don't think he is, elite from a talent perspective production is there you can't question it if we're going to talk about production I'm just gonna I'm gonna lose um Brennan Clay was not as productive as Kennedy Brooks has been and Kennedy Brooks has another year left mm-hmm. so it's you know it's not even about that but I, I do think that from a talent perspective and you know in terms of the other players that they have around them you know Brennan Clay played with Landry Jones Trevor Knight and Blake Bell Kennedy Brooks has played with Kyler Murray and Jalen Hurts and about to be Spencer Rattler and a much better offensive line. And he had Lincoln Riley and Brennan Clay and Josh Heupel. Mm-hmm. So it's not exactly an even playing field. Um, but do you want to go – I'll let you – I said that first part. I, I have more, but um, feel free to counter for I, – I guess – am I just misre, misre, misremembering? Was Brennan Clay just awful or what's uh, – what am I missing? I just think I, – I so – I'll agree on the whole on the stats part that you know you, you have to look at the you have to look at the context in which we're looking at these things. You can't look at them in vacuums as far as oh this guy's a much better player than this guy because like you said, I mean the offensive line in 2013 and 12 or whatever, it not as great, right? And Brennan Clay never even had a thousand yard rushing season. Uh, the the best he had was uh, just 50 yards short of a thousand and. That those were years where he shared the backfield with uh, Damian Williams, and he really only had two years that he had a major go. Um, and uh, but you know you look at Brennan Clay, and I just look at his running style. I just look at everything involved in in how he goes about it. And you know he 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 started one uh, eleven games, and that was the only time he ever started double digit games. Uh, he started six games in a in a, in a season before that. But I just look at the running style, um, how they approach the game. And Brennan Clay has a weird running style in general. Like, 
yeah. he doesn't really appear to use his knees that much as a high stepper. <laughs> it's pretty yeah. weird. He like he has like a straight leg approach. It's pretty, but he the thing that bugs me the most is not very good between the tackles. Um, not a patient runner, very upright runner. But yeah. that being said, he runs downhill. Uh, yeah. he, he looks like he's actively going as fast as he can whenever he can. And that's something to respect. But then I look at Kennedy Brooks and I'm thinking, man, this guy, like he's patient. He's not going to out juke you. He doesn't even look like he's going fast half the time. Like he, he looks like he, he, he is. Never, he's not fast. That's he why. looks like he's, he's jogging. <laughs> he looks like he's jogging and it's yeah. just incredible. He has long balance, strides and he has yeah. a low center of gravity. Yeah. Really his balance helps. is his elite trait. For and sure. it's, yeah, because Kenny Brooks, he's really good between the tackles. He's really good at reading his offensive line as far as seeing creases in the defense. And yeah, a lot of Brennan Clay's, you know, highlights are him going off tackle, uh, bouncing outside. And what's really interesting is that in pro football focus, you look at Kennedy Brooks and he's number one uh, in the nation outside the tackles as far as yards after contact after over an overall grade and his running style outside the tackles specifically outside the tackles. And I think one of his strengths is running in between the tackles. So I just think that talent wise, Kennedy Brooks is better uh, strictly because what he can do after yards of contact, his ability to one cut his ability to catch the ball at the same time. Yeah. I'm not sure how much better he is than Brennan clay. Because that's of, the thing. He's clo- he's closer to Clay than like Rodney Anderson. Well, right? I agree with that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, and I, 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 I think, think yeah. I think Trevor Knight. You know, anybody looks will look the same way with Trevor Knight. If you had Joe Mixon and Trevor Knight, I think Joe Mixon wouldn't look like what we saw with Baker Mayfield and right. stuff like that. And I think Joe Mixon right, yeah. looked even more elite if he had Kyler Murray back there with him. Uh, if he had would been able to stay one more year, and so I think Brooks is better, but I don't think. I don't think he's far, far ahead of Brennan Clay. Um, yeah. And also Brennan Clay, he's really famous on Deadspin, if you just Google his name. So that's fun. <laughs> I, w- I wasn't going to bring that one up. But here, here's a couple other things where I would ding Kennedy Brooks. He, he, I don't know if it's that he's playing better competition at the end of the year or if he's wearing down or some sort of combination of both. But this past year, um, 10 for 35 against LSU – uh, 17 for 59 in the Big 12 title game. And then last year he was 6 for 35 versus Alabama in the in the uh, Orange Bowl and then 10 for 28 in the Big 12 title game against Texas. So those four games, he's at 3.6 yards per carry, the four most important games that OU's played in the last two years. Um, he's had some other – but, he, you know, he's also had some – I think he had one other good game against Texas or Baylor. Um, I don't have his game logs up in front of me anymore. But he's been pretty good – in like the medium to big games and not very good Mm -hmm. in like the huge games. And I I think it may be, I think it's partially, um, you know, I I think it's a talent thing. Like he's not as good as Clyde Edwards Hilaire was (laughs) against Oklahoma, for example. Um, And not to say that Brennan Clay was awesome in big games either, although he did have, you know, he's got a couple pretty famous plays. Uh, The game winning touchdown in Bedlam and overtime in 2012. Yeah. And the uh, the third down conversion catch in the Alabama Sugar Bowl um, that kind of really limited it. I think it extended a drive in the fourth quarter that, you know, Alabama still got the ball back, but there was a minute left. Um, and otherwise they would have gotten it back with about six minutes left. So 
I, I don't know. If you made me pick, I probably would, would, would take Brooks. Um, but I think my original point was just that Brooks is not. And it came from our buddy Keegan Renault. Uh, Why is he always pick. at the center of these things? I know. He's always <laughs> at the center of it. And saying Brooks was the Landry Jones of running backs or something. <laughs> you know, he's not appreciated. It's like, no, Kennedy Brooks is properly appreciated. He's done amazing work with the opportunities that he's been given. But he's, you know – He's not in the top half of OU running backs of the last 20 years, I don't think. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I would argue that, I mean, like, you look at tiers of running backs in OU history. I mean, you're going you're gonna to see DeMarco Murray along with, like, Joe Mixon, Adrian Peterson. And then – Samaje, Yeah, and what you want to – what you want to say about Samaj P. Ryan and Rodney Anderson, whether in that first tier or, the, or if they're in a second tier below, like a Joe Mixon and age and yeah. eight. And then, like, below Samaje and Rodney Anderson, I mean, you've got Kennedy Brooks. And, you know, he's he's a guy that will come to work with his lunch pail, you know, that that prototypical, oh, yeah. stupid, stereotypical, <laughs> like, whatever. He, yeah. You know, he's going to do everything you ask him to do. Uh, he's not going to be a home run hitter like Joe Mixon. Like, when I think of home run hitter, I look at Joe Mixon and what he did in Bedlam and Norman when they won the Big 12 title on their own field, which they were like – you know, they're in like their own 25 yard line and Joe Mixon takes the ball. He jukes out like four dudes in the middle of the field. And then LeBron showstoppers like his way into the <laughs> And yeah. you're like, oh, that's an elite running back. And then you see what the Texas Rod- Tech game that year. Yeah. yeah you, one hand to catch up the sideline and just oh incredible things. Like, and you're like, okay, yeah, he doesn't have that big play making ability. Now I've seen, I've seen him ice games or like really, put games on ice like this past year against Texas when Lincoln Riley stopped abandoning the run again, he iced the game against Texas and had like a 40 yard run and same thing in Baylor uh, in Waco down in the Brazos. Again, just that whole, like when you press your right analog stick up on NCAA, when you cover the football, so he doesn't fumble. Yeah. um, He does that really well as far as just like get 30 yards upfield, don't fumble the ball. And so, like, I look at that, and I'm like, okay, you know, he's, I think he's better than Brennan Clay. I don't think the gap is massively wide. Um, but it's just – he's was freshman All-American, second-team pro football focus in that first year. Yeah. Second-team All-Big awesome. as a sophomore. Yeah. Uh, patient, great change of pace. Like, because what, what, he doesn't run full speed. Like, and it's, it's pretty weird to watch him run, actually, because he's a really good change of pace. Like, sometimes – He's just like really slow to the hole, and then all of a sudden you see him burst. And yeah. sometimes it's just like just like a, a Mack truck. There's like he's just moving along, just barely pulling a trailer, and that's really all it is. And his, I think his yards after contact is most impressive, like almost five yards after contact of what he's yeah. able to do with just with that low center of gravity. And he doesn't run upright like Brennan Clay. But I think the the more enticing argument. Um, is Zach Sanchez versus Aaron Colvin. Okay, yes. Right? Because that's, <laughs> yeah, the, that's, the, could, one, that's think, the one I could have been thinking about. I think this is the one that we're going to – we may not come to an agreement on. Um, this also – so this came from when Keegan and I did a uh, an all-decade team podcast. And it's mm-hmm. – I don't want to throw Colvin in there. So my, my first team corners were Sanchez and Colvin. Um, and his were Colvin and, and Parnell Motley. So, <laughs> so it's, it's more so, um, you know – if you want to take Colvin over Sanchez, that, I, I think that's fine. Um, but I, I, would have, I would definitely have Sanchez in over Colvin. 
Um, or sorry, I would definitely have him over Motley, and I, I probably, to a lesser extent, would have him over Colvin. But um, I guess is this the one where you, you polled former players? Yeah, this is one where I was like, hey, what do you think about this? Because I already, I already had my mind made up about Brooks, and I asked them about it, but I was like, uh, you were on the team during these specific years. You got to see yeah. – uh, the you got to see junior and senior Aaron Colvin in comparison to uh, the last couple of the first few years of Sanchez, which of course he only spent three years at Oklahoma um, or playing wise. Anyways, he was four years, but he decided to lead yeah. up that, that third year playing. So what do you, what do you got for me? Why, why is, why are you taking Sanchez over Colvin? I'm taking, San, I'm taking Sanchez because he gets interceptions, right? I mean, that's what did Alex Grinch say in every interview he gave last year? All he cares about is takeaways, right? Yeah. So Zach Sanchez, 15 career interceptions. Every other OU cornerback since Sanchez graduated combined have 12. Yeah, I think, I think he had 10 more than Colvin. I think Colvin had five career and Sanchez yeah. had 15. Colvin had five in his career and none through his first two years and only one in his senior year. He had four as a junior. I know yeah. he had some injuries in there as well. So, But what I would say is the last point, and then I'll, I'll give you get out to you for a rebuttal, but – Colvin's coverage was better than Sanchez. I will acknowledge that. But at the end of the day, Colvin's defenses still gave up a touchdown, just like Sanchez's did, except when Sanchez picked the ball off, right? Like that was your only chance of getting the ball back was if Sanchez, you know, got an interception or something fluky happened with, you know, Eric Stryker got to the, you know, got to the quarterback on third down. Like those are your only options for getting the ball back. Um, And with Colvin, yes, you know, he shut down that side of the field for a lot of his career. But the you know when you look at the S and P plus rankings of the defenses in those eras from 2010 through you know the beginning of Colvin's era in 2010 through 2015 the end of Sanchez they're all about the same like they're all top 30 they're all pretty good they're all you know what you would love to have next year um, but you know shout out Brent Venables I'd, I'd rather I'd rather have the interceptions I would um, I don't know what, what's your take on it. So I think a lot of people forget that Aaron Colvin played safety for the first two years of his career at OU. Um, And I think about looking at what defensive coordinators would say in the primary, the primary notion of defense in general. And I look at, I look at the primary point of defense, not just in football, but in the NBA and baseball, uh, soccer, whatever else, professional sport. And I think the primary point of defense is to prevent scoring and then secondary of course is to take the ball away like in the NBA or in soccer like you're watching the Bundesliga I mean these dudes aren't always playing a high line and playing aggressive defense their main point is to get is to prevent points and then if they can force a turnover so I think the the ideology of Alex Grinch is like hey you know if the ball's near that's a possession I think that's definitely true as far as you saying like, hey, I would take the interception. I would take the I take the turnovers because turnovers equal you know the the goal of the defense is to get the ball back to the offense. I think it's secondary to get you know to not allowing points because yeah. they view because they weren't forcing turnovers this year, and that's what Alex Grinch promised. And they they said, well, you know, a three and out is like a turnover, right? Uh, so because they weren't forcing any turnovers because they kept on dropping them actually, because, <laughs> like they didn't have any chances uh, and yeah. Grace I just, I just, was sick about that by the way I mean it's just was, un- unbelievable we walk we walk in there I think they won I mean it was after like I don't know their fifth straight win or something um but it was or their fifth it was a win I think they were undefeated maybe the Kansas State game had already happened but 
sometime in conference play. But it was like the third or fourth day, game in a row that they hadn't gotten a takeaway, and he just looked like he wanted to vomit. Like he was so yeah. mad. He was like, like, and Kenneth Murray came in all pissed off because he knew he was gonna have to run again on Monday. Like they still didn't get a turnover. Like, and they're like they're beating they these about. other teams' asses. On defense, yeah. and everybody, all these other teams are like, oh, my God, this defense is so different than a year ago. And they're just, yeah. like, physically beating the shit out of those, these other teams. Like, Texas, Sam Ellinger's like, dude, I don't even know yeah, <laughs> how they changed one year from the other. And they're still in here because they're not forcing turnovers in. Like, you look at Trey Brown. You look at Buki, who had several like, several times the ball hit him right between the numbers or in the hands, and they just, just couldn't haul it in. Well, and, him and Molly were the only ones that had any anyways, you know? I mean – And Molly got screwed out of, like, two turnovers. He did, yeah. Year. He did. It's just, it's just – I look at both these guys, and I look at the, the primary product of defense. And, like like you said, like, if you're looking for team defense, overall team defense, I think Zach, Zach Sanchez is a good player. Um, uh, you look at two different types of players, right? You look at a lockdown yeah. corner and Aaron Colvin, and then you look at a ball hawk in uh, Zach Sanchez. There's two totally different types – of dude, Zach Sanchez uh, ran hot at like 5'10", 170 something. And Maybe. Colvin was about like what, 5'11", like 180, something yeah, like that. Yeah, 190, somewhere around there. So, like, and you have one guy that specifically plays very aggressively to get interceptions, where you have another guy that he takes away one side of the field. And you even saw that in the year that they actually shared the field together in which Colvin was playing so well on one side, yeah. he forced him to throw to Zach Sanchez's, Zach Sanchez's way of the sideline. And, like, they're, you, you want to look at their qualifications. I mean, they're, they're, they're almost identical. Like, both of them were Thorpe semifinalists. Both were All-Americans in the conference, and Zach Sanchez is actually a second-team All-American in general, and Colvin actually never earned those honors. Um, but that's just interceptions, right? I mean, that's, you know, the media that's voting on that is just sorting the list by interceptions. So yeah, I mean, yeah, you see that. It's, it's just like, hey, who's making the highlight plays? And so, like, yeah. Aaron Colvin, when they're not throwing your way, you know, you're not going to make highlight plays. Whereas Zach Sanchez, man, the, one of the things yeah. I have for him was, he, okay, is he a lockdown corner? No. It, does he get beat on double moves because he's so aggressive? And does he talk a lot of crap? Yes. But Zach Sanchez is – ball skills as far as like after catching the ball and being an athlete are I think probably superior to Aaron Colvin's at the end of the day if I'm just looking for a specific player and I'm trying to shut down one side of the field regardless of what other the other 10 guys are doing um I'm I'm taking Aaron Colvin because he's better he's taller he's more physical whereas Zach Sanchez is this guy he's after the ball uh and I think so like you look at different coordinators and you look at different styles of defense and what that might look like. Whereas, you know, Amari Cooper in the NFL who disappears for the Cowboys at different times of the year said, you know, the best corner he's ever played against was Aaron Colvin. And I think I thought that was pretty telling uh, as far as coming out of college anyways, not in the NFL. Yeah. And Colvin's and then, had the better NFL career. He's, he's also had the better NFL career. And so this is when I, this is where I leaned on um, one of my buddies that played during when Sanchez and Colvin were there. I said, Hey, like, you know, like I, I, you know, I want to know your opinion about Brennan Clay and Kenny Brooks, but what I really want to know more is Aaron Colvin, Zach Sanchez, and he just straight up said he's taking Aaron Colvin no contest because the leadership. He said to Zach is an asshole. 
three. Well, that is something that I can't know. I mean, <laughs> he, he, said, <laughs> he, he, he said he said specifically, you look at the styles of play where you have one guy that is straight up just going. For, he's hunting for he's hunting for interceptions, yeah. and it gets him beat several times. Um, but because of the amount of interceptions, like you brought up, like this guy has so many turnovers that he generates because the amount of the turnovers, it alludes to maybe national honors, like the all American things like you brought up because people yeah. want fancy plays. That's what people yeah. are looking for. Like they're looking for highlights on ESPN. Whereas so that people are going to say, Oh, he's, he's got like this many interceptions and shit. Like he's got three times as many interceptions as, as Aaron Colvin. Um, he thinks he believes just because of what they, how they played just that because he meant interceptions that, uh, it inflated and maybe overrated what people thought about his cover skills, which weren't the best um, at hand. So I just thought it was really interesting because again, like we can, we could argue about this, but I think, I think yeah. it really, it really depends upon what you're looking for and a yeah. defense, what you're looking for in a player. It's two styles of play. I would take Aaron Colvin almost, I think I would take Aaron Colvin as maybe the best corner Um at OU since since 2010. I mean, there's there's not that many from the pickings. It's either him or Sanchez, right? I mean, it's like not a Sanchez. Mo- the, it's Sanchez, Colvin, and Motley are the top three, I think. Dominique Franks isn't else. too bad. Uh, I don't even he, know when Frank was. Franks even post 2010. It's hard to remember these days. Brian Jackson wasn't bad. Demontre Hurst wasn't bad. Yeah, just a lot of names, but it's just like I would take Aaron Colvin. I think because like Gabe Lynn. Yeah, Franks was 09 was his last okay. year. So like, was last Gabe Lynn was playing the wrong position for the majority of his career. And then he goes to safety. He's like, oh, wait, he played, he's supposed he's to awesome. be here. And then Aaron Colvin plays yeah. safety his first two years. Like, oh, wait, put him at cornerback. And all of a sudden, he comes into games because P.J. and Bannister is getting his shit rocked and everybody else is having a really awful <laughs> Did game. Did he play? God. <laughs> yeah. And I, I think it was Lockett. Like, Aaron Colvin could not play because of a shoulder. And they said – well, we need somebody to cover this guy because oh, he's just getting burned. And yeah. they put Colvin in there hurt and just said, just follow Lockett around the field and progressively yeah. just shut him down. So I think those are things that Colvin, as a player, is better than Zach Sanchez. I think Zach Sanchez, if you have an Eric Stryker on the edge or if Obo Garonquo that's like really getting after the quarterback, I think you want Zach Sanchez on the field because he's yeah. going after the ball. But if you're looking for a balanced defense and dudes that are going to really get after it a little more, like if you have last year's OU's defensive front, when they're not playing two gap and you're playing one gap and you've got guys shutting other dudes down, I think that's feeding time for dudes like Kenneth Murray and whoever else is in their front seven. So I think overall Aaron Colvin's a better defender, but I think team defense wise, if you're looking for turnovers specifically, yeah. I think you would take Zach Sanchez. I, I, for me, I think it depends on your other cornerback. Like, if you have a bad – if Aaron Colvin is playing with another cornerback that's bad, shutting down one side of the field doesn't matter. Right. Like, you know, it's like like we saw in the Peach Bowl. Like, Connor Motley shut down Jamar Chase. Yeah. But it did not matter because Justin Jefferson had the middle of the field wide open because DeLaren Turner-Yell was hurt. But you're basing this off of, off the, the the other ten other guys instead of that one guy. Well, but I think with corners they're they're especially linked, right? I mean, you can yes, you can have a slot receiver, and there's there's other defenders and different responsibilities, and you're going to have safeties that are going to have you know different coverage helps and, and things like that. But you know, 
I just think that if one corner is bad, the other corner's ability to, you know, shut down his side of the field is, is less important because you're going to end up giving up points anyways. Whereas if you've got somebody like Sanchez who might be able to bait the quarterback into throwing his way, I think that's valuable. I think it's valuable, but if he's getting burned the other half of the time on stop and goes, what? that's one thing. But if he's getting burned or the other bad cornerback's getting burned, what's the difference? Like the one difference of them is getting burned. The difference one of them is getting burned, though. <laughs> the difference is I'm looking at these guys as singular players. I can think that yeah. Colvin is a better player than Zach Sanchez, but I can also see, like if you say, the cornerbacks are linked. Like, for example, Aaron Colvin and Zach Sanchez shared the field in 2013, and that's yep. when OU's defense was number one, like every statistical category in the Big 12. You had two good cornerbacks. One was a ball hawk, and one was a lockdown. And, that, and that's a perfect situation. It's great. Yeah. But then I look at the years prior, and you look at Aaron Colvin – by himself, and you look at Zach Sanchez by himself, I can say one player versus a receiver, if I have, let's say, if I have Des Bryant on the other side of the field for OSU, I'm taking Aaron Colvin to guard that guy instead of Zach Sanchez. I agree. I, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I, agree. I would want to – if I just need, you know, no context, if anything, I just want the best cover corner, it's Colvin. But, you know, if we're talking about, you know, different – ways to contextualize like do you want a turnover what are the other defenders what's like your scheme? guys then in I, the field yeah <laughs> then i think that you know the door opens slightly for the ball hawk but that's fair um, i think we reached some common ground there that's good yeah more more common ground than i than i would have expected that's fair um all right man let's get to some things we can agree with let's go with long kruger because oh, typically <laughs> football wise football wise we don't always see eye to eye but basketball for some reason we typically have the same opinions, which is really interesting to me. Long Kruger, man, OU basketball. Do you it's, think? Yeah. Do you think it's time for Long Kruger? Do you think it is? It is past his time. Do you think that OU needs to go younger, like Texas did, and it's not been good for them? What do you think the future of OU basketball should look like, or could look like, or do you think you go with old steady? You know, get you. 18 to 21 wins and into the tournament yeah. every single year. What do you like? What, what is the bar for OU basketball and what could that look like? It's so tough because like Lon Kruger has given Joe Castiglione exactly what he wanted. He's gotten in the last, what is it? Eight years. He's gotten multiple sweet 16s. He got him a final four. He got him two lottery picks and absolutely zero cheating allegations, which is yep. in my opinion, exactly what, Joe Castiglione wanted on the back end of the Jeff Capel era. Hey, is, wanted, isn't that what OU basketball traditionally is? Just like you're pretty, yes. you're good and you have your pretty great years, but nothing special. Well, but I mean, I think with, with Samson and Capel, I mean, they both had uh, Samson made the final four, right? And yeah. uh, Capel made the elite eight, ran into that North Carolina buzzsaw. They Capel know, had probably would have made the Blake Griffin is what he Capel had. Well, he, that was a good team though. I mean, there were two seed. I, I think that, you know, there's arguments that they could have made. They, I think they would have made the Final Four if they hadn't run into that North Carolina team. Was that Tony Crocker and McKenzie and oh Austin Gosh, Johnson or something like that? Austin Johnson, Taylor um, Griffin. Man, I'm, I'm Taylor Griffin. Yeah, I'm blanking on the names, but but Blake Griffin and you know Blake Griffin and Steph Curry were so much better than everybody else in the sport that year. But yeah. you know, other than Tyler Hansborough, I guess who, who they ran into. But I don't like no, that. I mean, so that to say, like. 
Yes, I think everyone recognizes that things feel a little bit stagnant right now. Mm-hmm. Um, with Kruger especially, he's kind of a, a boring guy. I don't think that's <laughs> too mean. I don't want to be mean. But, um, you know, there's just not a whole lot of energy around the program right now. And I, I would not be surprised if, if he retires after this year or maybe after mm-hmm. next year. Um, but I, I don't think I don't think you can fire Lon Kruger. He's done exactly yeah, what think, you wanted. I don't think you can either. And I think do you think there's you know slight nudges in the program that would cause it? Because like I, I think about this all the time that oh you got that transfer from Houston, Tayshawn Thomas, and yeah. he came to OU just you know as Buddy Heald started to become Buddy Heald. And if yeah. man, if for some reason early. if Tayshawn Thomas was born a year later and was able to transfer to OU that that shapes OU up where they have an inside presence and a definite superior outside game to almost anybody in the country. And that looks like a national title team that they could have and like what that would do for long Kruger. If you remember the Tayshaun Thomas got eligible for that, for buddy's junior year, I believe, Mm -hmm. but up until like literally a couple weeks before the season started, they didn't know if he was going to be eligible or not. They didn't know if he was going to have to sit out a year. Mm. And if he had sat out a year, he would have been on that Final Four team. You know, Kadeem, Kadeem Latin would not have been, you know, probably wouldn't have been the starter. I don't know that they beat Villanova. Um, shoot, I mean, they probably don't – the seeding's probably different. They probably don't play Villanova in the Final mm-hmm. Four. Um, who knows? Maybe they don't make it. I don't know. Kadeem Latin was an important defender on that team, uh, which is, you know, somewhat sacrilegious to say. But, um, you know, you change up too many variables, you don't know what's going to happen, I guess. But – yeah, I mean, that would have been – having Tayshaun Thomas there. I mean, that's that's the biggest flaw of the Lon Kruger era, right? I mean, he, he has not figured out the center position. From I mean, other than, I guess, Ryan Spangler, um, you know, I mean – I don't think he's figured out how to run – like, okay, no, he has figured out because he's like a very prestigious coach from the NBA to college. But yeah. his offense is predicated off of getting mismatches – yeah, it's archaic. I mean, everybody's in an air now. Everybody's running these pick and roll offenses, lots of space, and that is, and it's so disappointing because I, I think like Jamal Bienemy would have been awesome in a pick and roll offense mm-hmm. that he was, you know, allowed to embrace. Um, I still think Davion Harmon is an would be an awesome pick and roll ball handler. Can get to his floater is really good. It's probably not going to finish at the rim super well. At least you know, we'll see if he can develop that at some point, but. Yeah, I mean, they they got to run more pick and roll. They got to, you know, it's a little bit of an outdated offense now, which is crazy because four years ago they had the national player of the year and they were in the final four. Yeah, and it's um, like, you know, you run ISO a lot. And so with dudes like Mo Gibson transferring from North Texas, like yeah, he's good in ISO situations and he's good from three-pointers. And uh, Lord help him, Austin Reeves, he came to OU with a seemingly high pedigree and was – not that great for the majority of the year, except when yeah. he just killed TCU the last the game. game. Like they <laughs> thought their uh, maybe extended season would would be, you know. Yeah, it's, it's just like you say, it's archaic. And I'm I don't super think, high on Mo Gibson, though. Yeah, I, oh I think man, he's going to be able to. He shattered all the records the in West Texas. I he I just I remember watching after he committed OU. I went back and watched his game against OU and some of his other highlights. He can get to the basket. Oh, he doesn't have any. I mean, Jamal Bienemy could get there, but he didn't really know what to do. Harmon <laughs> is not really at a point where he could get there. Right. Uh, you know, he's just not not quite quick enough. Um, his arms aren't super long. Um, Alondis Williams can kind of get there, but he's actually better as like a pull-up jump shooter, I think, mm-hmm. than a guy that's going to get all the way to the basket. But Gibson can get to the basket, and that penetration is going to allow for 
a lot of open threes in the corner for like Manic and Reeves. Um, and I'm forgetting the other shooter. Um, I guess Harmon. Harmon can hit, on, hit an open three. But yeah, I, I, I think that. And if you have Kate, uh, Cade, <laughs> wow, Cade, Cade Davis, God, <laughs> wrong white guy. I think if you had Austin <laughs> Reeves handling the ball, because you know Mo Gibson broke, he shattered all of the North Texas three-point percentage records in their history, and he was on pace to shatter the total made just in his final two seasons or final season in North Texas. It's just incredible what he's able to do as an outside shooter as well as a ball handler because he wants to go to OU and be more of a ball handling point guard there too to showcase what he can do. But before we close this thing out, I'm a big fan of Friday Night Lights, the series. Ooh. I know I know you're you you made a podcast about it. Yeah, me and watching Joe it. It's on hiatus um, a little bit right now, but I, I think we'll be back uh, at some point. So three shots. Who's the best character? Who's the least favorite character? Oh. Favorite episode? Um, my favorite, best character, I, you know, I would not have said this before Joe and I started doing the rewatches, but routinely the MVP of the episode is Tammy Taylor. Um, just, you know, kind of out of left field. She's good, probably, man. You know, she's good. You know, she's just, she pretty much pitches a perfect game every time. Like, you know, very rarely makes a mistake. Um, Least favorite character. Um, I mean, it, the real answer is Julie. Um, but That's I actually, I, I think that, that Tim Riggins to this point is pretty irredeemable. Um, <laughs> so with the real answer being, uh, with the actual answer being Julie, the obvious answer, I'll, I'll, I'll throw Tim Riggins under the bus there. What about your favorite episode? Oh, favorite episode. Um, gosh, I don't even, I mean, I, Something in the first season. I, I really like the the early episodes in the first season. I can't think of, you know, I don't know the name of the number, but there's this there's this scene, and maybe in the pilot or the second episode where um, Coach Taylor's like working out with Matt in the rain in the you know on the field alone, and he's got the assistant coach up in the press box turning the lights on, and is like just you know, who are you? I'm Matt Saris. You know, just you know, really getting into it and getting him pumped up to be the quarterback after Street gets hurt. Um, so that's that's my favorite scene, at least. I don't know that you know I could classify it as, as an episode, and I don't I don't even remember which episode it was specifically. But uh, what about you? You got any? You got Man, any? Ep- I think it's funny series? that you say Riggins is your least favorite. I think I love the I love Tim everybody Riggins. loves Riggins. This is the hill that I hill, Riggins, and maybe you know as we get further into this rewatch. He plays a Texan so well for a guy that's from uh, Canada. I know. In the Canadian accent <laughs> thing, it really – it comes out one time like in a locker room speech. Um, and it's kind of awkward. It's funny. I was like, is he Canadian? And then it, he was. And then but, he played no, David Koresh just, in the series Waco. And I'm like, why is this Canadian always in Texas uh, playing Texans? Yeah. But I, I love just, Tim Riggins. He's, he's like – He's like pretty racist, right? And just like he's an alcoholic yeah. at seventeen, and yeah, oh yeah, it's I like, don't know. You, you just... watch three seasons, and you're like, wait, this dude was a sophomore. He was a freshman, and he was like, yeah, six yeah. Foot five with all those muscles. How does that even work? I mean, I, I love I the Riggins know, he, family. Tim and Billy Riggins are fantastic. He also, you know, 
has an affair with his paralyzed best friend's girlfriend. Everybody. Like why do, like I never really I don't I don't get it, I guess. You know, maybe eventually I'll I'll get the Texas charm, but I think that's part of the reason why I love him so much cuz I don't get it, but it's just Riggins. It's the most Riggins <laughs> thing ever. Like every national sign day I'm like, "Oh, oh, you got a surprise commitment from Tim Riggins." And of course, somebody that has no idea <laughs> is like, "Oh, where is he from? It's Dylan, Dylan, Texas. He's so good." Um Oh, no. I think least favorite character since – because, like, you're right. I mean, Julie Taylor's just like, oh, my – it's just the worst. It's, but then, like, it's the only re- answer, yeah. re-watching the series, you get a couple other options there. I forgot how much I really disliked Smash until, like, he turned back into, See, like – I like Smash. I like, he, he, like, he turned back into – like, he went from, like, this entitled asshole and then once he was humbled by an injury back to somebody that was very likable – into like where you got to start at A and M or whatever later on in yeah. the series, and then, and then you 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 meet the McCoys and you're like, oh, these guys are the worst. And then you have Voodoo oh, yeah. Taylor and all these other guys. But Julie Taylor, Julie Taylor is the true least favorite worst character yeah. here that ruins almost everything for everybody. Uh, I actually respect Voodoo a lot. You do. I remember he had? I do. He had a, a couple scenes where he just like walked into coaches Taylor's office and was just like, look, this is how it is, man. Like we don't have to talk. <laughs> and it's, it's like, what 17 year old would say that to their brand new coach? Like, I don't know. I, it's kind of unrealistic in a way, but I just, I, I respect it. I don't know. I think it's interesting how they, how they combined current events with the actual show because they're like, Oh, voodoo Taylor. He's a hurricane Katrina relocation yeah. player. And I'm like, yeah. wait, what are we watching it? It's like, how did this make it in here? And then there's the whole like, recruiting players allegations and stuff like that and you're like wow this is this is mac like browns, some serious mac, stuff and it's mac just like mac, in it. yeah mac yeah, brown's gonna a, recruit him as a safety just like every other quarterback he tried to do in the in texas history and oh, that's, no, that's, that's a that's another that's another we didn't un, even bring that up yeah we underrated part one. of the show is that mike leach makes a cameo mac brown makes a cameo there's a couple other not as himself though yeah, yeah. He's playing like a random high school coach right after he'd won the Rose Bowl. It just it's just incredible. And like Mike Leach is just playing Mike Leach, right? He's like at a gas station and is yeah. he's like, Oh yeah, yeah I'm going <laughs> How do you get to Lubbock from here? And it's like, what the hell? Like <laughs> like watching this like right now and Mike Leach had just taken a job to Mississippi State, it is just like this this it makes you think of the old Big Twelve and then favorite episode. I mean there's 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 a lot of really good episodes. Um I, I really like the episodes where um, Eric Taylor is coaching East Dillon and they go against the West Dillon. Those are, those are pretty special because of yeah, how much uh, hate like the show breeds in you for, for the McCoys and how much like, you want East Dillon to win against the Panthers from the Lions. So that, those are, those are, those are pretty, pretty special. I mean, like, anything with julie taylor and her college tas and stuff like that is pretty garbage oh, and oh then <laughs> yikes i will say I, sh- I should have mentioned saracen as, as a uh, the other favorite character he's good to, you know I'll, I'll throw him in there with tammy he's the kid you know he gets the, the kid award for that but. he's 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 got good character progression and so does michael b jordan like people like totally Smash, forget yeah. people totally yeah. forget vince howard came yeah. from friday night lights as this dude that's like running from the cops you know it's just it's yeah. pretty unbelievable but well shoot was he in that i think he was in the wire before that yeah he was he was yeah he was wallace i'm re-watching Jeez. that right now too goodness but 
I think it's about time we end this podcast, man. Like Spencer, thanks for joining me. Tell me and tell everybody that's listening where they can find your stuff and where they'll be able to find your stuff in the future. Cause I know you're relocating to up North and not that far in the future. Yeah. So a week from today, my wife and I are, yeah, we're moving to Kansas city. Um, but, uh, yeah, my Twitter handle is Davis underscore Spencer. Spencer is spelled, uh, some would say incorrectly, uh, it's S P E and S E R. What's the backstory behind that? Cause I, I asked about it, but I want everybody else to hear. Um, so my, <laughs> my, uh, I guess there's a, a famous detective show from way back in the day called Spencer for hire. Uh, um, that my parents liked and what, he spelled it with two S's and actually there was a uh, couple of months ago Mark Wahlberg did a remake on Netflix of the Spencer for Hire it's a movie it's apparently terrible I haven't even watched it but uh, yeah that's where that's where the spelling comes from that's fantastic but anyways man always awesome to talk and always cool to you know debate topics and whatever oh, yeah. else Any, anytime. Thanks. thanks for coming on appreciate you so much uh, we'll check you guys later